But I want to speak a little bit about uh, how we got here and where we are, for that matter. <laughs> so, a few words. First of all, of course, uh, we normally have this festival in Finland, but um, as here we're having it here, and this is mostly due to the desire of Kushangi to get us all to India, so we're indebted to her and the Finnish devotees who last year expressed some initial enthusiasm after my discussion about the possibility, the prospect of such. And uh, most of you, or half of you, have never been here before. And, and I haven't been here for about five or six years, which is the longest period of time since joining Mahaprabhu's mission that I've been uh, separated from this uh, such opportunity to come and practice and uh, associate here in the Dham. So it's... it's uh, with much uh, enthusiasm that I've come here and all of you have come to help me in that regard, so I appreciate your enthusiasm as well. You know, it's easy to get lost in the forest <laughs> there in uh, Northern California. It certainly is a serene setting, much like Vrindavan of times gone by, at least the visible to the external eye, Vrindavan was surely to group Sanatan and others who settled here, following the lead of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and made their hermitages, many hermitages, many devotees, with different opinions also, but nonetheless living happily and, and cooperatively. So we hope to carry on with that essential spirit of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And so we are gathered here today, and again, thanks to Prashangi for having such a strong desire to bring us to Vrindavan. Of course, there are some devotees in Vrindavan also here who have been expressing that desire without being able to communicate so well. Radhanath and Lakshmi Priya, who have been waiting for us to return for some time. So I appreciate their desires. At any rate, you may know that after the disappearance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and along with, with him, his so many eternal associates, the, the group that was left behind, so to speak, the second generation of devotees, they were very much um, bereft in the uh, absence of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Shirup, Sanatan, and so forth, so many elders. And, of course, from them, we, among other things, we, we learned that uh, growth, development, progress in Gaudiya Vaishnavism is by, by Sangha not by bairagya. They're really kind of quite opposite in one sense. Bairagya is, is about knowledge and detachment, knowledge that fosters detachment. When we have knowledge, we understand that things that are here today and gone tomorrow are not the kind of things that we can invest ourselves in in pursuit of enduring happiness. Sometimes they say, what is that saying? I can't remember. Things. Anyway, some things are more important than things. Something like that. So, collecting things, material acquisition, is ignorance. And as much as we are in pursuit of enduring happiness and in things that don't endure, that are here today and gone tomorrow, we have little prospect of, of finding that. And so, this kind of knowledge which is also, in one sense, fundamental to Vedanta, and we are a school of Vedanta, Gaudiya Vedanta. So, this is important to us, but I say, nonetheless, that we progress by Sangha, and not by Bairagya. And the, and the interesting thing, one of them, about Sangha is that it, is, well, it means attachment, it means association, it means connecting with, with things, with people. And Bairagya is about disconnecting with, from people, and things. And Bairagi is about knowledge and Sangha ultimately, Gaudiya Sangha is about ignorance. <laughs> so, because love is about ignorance. You know that. Ladini and Tamaguna, these things require some correspondence. Ladini Shakti and Tamaguna. <laughs> In Surup Shakti we have Sambit, Ladini, Sandini, Sandini existence, super existence, Vishuddha Sattva, pure existence, super pure, and some of it, 
a kind of knowing that's essential knowing, and Ladini, Ananda, joy. And in Jeev Shakti, this is a partial manifestation of Sarup Shakti, so we have some semblance of these things. We have existence that is enduring. It could be purer than what we might have on our own, so to speak. If, for that matter, we could ever be on our own. As Tathasta Shakti, we are very much a product of our environment. So unto ourself is only really, for the most part, theoretical. But exist we do, and knowledge, we are Chitkana, so up to Brahmagyan and Ananda, joy up to Brahmananda. And Maya Shakti then, we have Achit, Asat, Nirananda, and so many desires are the product of that association, corresponding with the gunas and so on and so forth. So there's some correspondence at any rate between the low end of material existence, Tamaguna, and Ladini Shakti, love power. Gyan Shunya Bhakti, Gyan Shunya Bhakti. This Chaitanya Mahaprabhu liked this idea. This is Vrindavan. Bhakti that is not encumbered by Gyan. Rupa Goswami said, Anya Bilashita Sunyam Gyan Karmadi and Avritam. So Gyan Karmadi and Avritam, that ends, Karma and Avritam ends before this, before Brajlila. But Gyan and Avritam, that ends here. So, to overcome the, the implications of karma, to, the predicament of putting things before ourselves, the ignorance of thinking that by acquiring, I'm growing, when in fact I'm going into debt. We build an identity based on association of, of, with material nature, false identity. So, this karmic implication to overcome that and in the context of bhakti that is not such a big thing but jnana navritam that is a big thing even you give up all material selfishness still so far to go to come to the brajlila all the way up to dwarka still knowledge is impeding the bhakti knowledge that nanda tanuja is Bhagwan, and he show his four arms there to prove it to them. So this is what Rupa Goswami is ultimately talking about. This Brajlila, where in through the eyes of Radha, where he could not show his four arms even if he tried. The power of this kind of bhakti, Gyan Shunya Bhakti. So this Gyan Shunya Bhakti, we grow in this regard by Sangha, and this is a kind of ignorance. Ignorance of the tattva, that Krishna is, uh, in the language of Prabhupada, the supreme personality of God. Krishna is too Bhagavan Sayan. Not that it disappears, but it goes into the background by the strength of love. That knowledge is not required there. It gets in the way. Pujapad Sridhar once gave the example of how in the United States we have a very powerful military-industrial complex like the rest of the world, unfortunately, has to see and know about. And at the same time, in the United States, we don't see that. <laughs> Only on the TV, and that's also edited to some extent. But all the missiles and all, they're all put away with that peaceful interaction of the people. They don't parade the missiles and tanks through the streets and so forth and intimidate the people. They're all hidden. But if the country should be attacked, then so many missiles will come and tanks and everywhere. So they're there in the ground, in the background, in the foundation, it's protected, something like that. But there's no necessity to show that. In fact, showing that becomes an impediment to the happy affairs of the general public. So in Braj also, then there's so much power there. But there's no need to exercise that. In fact, it gets in the way. Knowledge is a kind of power. Right? In order to do anything, you require some knowledge. Knowledge is the power behind the force of our action. So this knowledge is conspicuous by its absence. But when somebody from there comes to here, 
when an uneducated village girl comes here to the material world, then from that place she has so much knowledge. Nana Shastra Vicharana Knipano Sadharma Samstapako Rokanam Hitakaranoti Bhuvane Manu Sharanyakoro. And with such compassion they give that knowledge. But in giving that knowledge, what are they doing really? They're sharing their association. This is idea. Because Again, as I say, our way of growing is by sangha, by association. We think sometimes, erroneously, that it's by collecting information and assimilating information. This is an exercise that's part of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. But the capacity, the very capacity to do so, how it comes about. We're proud sometimes of our reasoning with regard to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We feel that it answers all the questions. But everybody doesn't feel like that. <laughs> so are they more reasonable or less reasonable? Well, if you test it, you find there are quite a few reasonable people who have reasonable arguments to the contrary. They don't sway us because why? We've had a good association. And that's why we think the way we do in the first place. So our reasoning with regard to bhakti, its efficacy, and, its, and subsequently our involvement in bhakti, it comes from, an on, uh, from beyond reasoning. It comes from Sadhu Sangha. This is the mool, the, the root, the, the janma of bhakti. Uh, Agyan Sukriti. From Agyana Sukriti, without even knowing, with no knowledge of what we're doing, but participating in bhakti, then some capacity comes within us. This starts to form a future psychology that will make us predisposed towards the reasoning of bhakti that makes good sense to us. You understand? So the reasoning that we have about bhakti is not reason-based. There's a good reasoning to why we have it, <laughs> but it comes from something other than reasoning. It comes from having good association with a real devotee, with bhakti. And they are the ones who manifest the bhakti in the world. The temples, the deities, the books, the opportunity, and so forth. So we grow by sangha. And this sangha, it naturally fosters a kind of vairagya, yukta vairagya, practical kind of renunciation. Renunciation, it looks spiritual. Material acquisition also looks spiritual to less educated people. And if you do bhakti, no one will pay any attention to you. If you do real bhakti, who will pay any attention to you? Because you don't get anything for it, you may have nothing to show for it. It's not about avoiding distress or getting happiness or anything like that. It has nothing to do with any of that. It looks very undesirable in the material world. <laughs> what is it? It's service. And what is the? what do you get for it? More service. That's all. That's all. One time, Pujpat Chudamarsh was speaking about bhakti in terms of like making investment in the bank. One of my godbrothers said, but is there any time we can draw anything out? He never, he said. He never think like that. Of course, the natural result is that we live on the dividends of interest that will come. Just keep putting in the bank. Just keep putting it in the bank. Eventually, the dividends will come. Interest will come. Check will come automatically. And you can put that back in the bank also. So, bhakti, a little difficult to understand. Again, most people think that if I engage in spiritual life, I'll get something tangible. I'll get material prosperity, happiness, health, good children, or whatever may be the case. My material situation will improve. It may not. So if they don't see that, then they're not very attractive. But if they see somebody that's very renounced, then they think, oh, you must have something. That's very different from material acquisition. There's some power in that. Then the renounced sages, they don't eat much, they don't sleep much, they don't wear much. People are attracted. They think that's very spiritual. But this has little, if anything, to do with bhakti. So bhakti is very difficult to understand. It's just serving. That's all. And the, our, our ideals of service, the brajbasis, they're attached to their families. <laughs> their cows, their houses, everything. 
But by anyway, by a good sangha, this thing gradually we can get some understanding. Devotees will speak in a way to try to appeal to our reasoning and so forth. We should universally speak at least the language of, of reasoning. But reasoning falls short to explain what is the experience of Vrindavan Bhakti. And, and this is uh, central to the teaching. So when you find the philosophy somehow doesn't quite satisfy somebody or even yourself, don't be concerned about that. You cannot speak about it comprehensively. Words going there, return. From where mind going, returns. You cannot say enough about it. So those who are saying something about it, satam prasangam mamavevya sambhido bhavantivit karanam rasayana pakata they are devotees. We should associate with devotees. What are devotees? Satam prasangam. Satam prasangam. Mamavirasambhido. Vantifit karnarasayana katha. Another name for devotee is satam. Truthful. So you can understand how rare it is to be a devotee because truth is very rare commodity in a world that is based on falsity. Very hard to find. To be truthful, to be honest into yourself. It's not hard. You see, bhakti is so simple. If you just pray once, as soon as you pray, you know what you need to do. If you pray sincerely, you know all your attachments that come to the front. It's very clear. Oh, that's that's my problem. So, Satam Prasanga, in good association, real association, what do we find? What do those people do? Who, the honest devotees. Then they are always Mama Virasambhido. Kapil Muni says they are always speaking about my glories. And as a result of that association, what happens? Then that topic, Harikata, goes in the ear, Hritkarna Rasayana Kata. And it is like Rasayana, rejuvenating elixir, life giving. And shraddha, it gives shraddha, it gives faith. How valuable is faith in a world of doubt? This is the plane of doubt, to get faith, and then to cultivate that faith, more sangha, and right kind of sangha, the faith is coming in the same way, those kind of persons, to associate with them. Shraddha ratir, from shraddha to rati, anukram, step by step we will go. And all by Sangha, that is the idea. So progress goes by Sangha. And Sangha means attachment. And Bairagi means detachment. So Sangha is a kind of ignorance, divine ignorance. It fosters naturally the kind of renunciation that Tyagis, that renunciates, Ganis are struggling to maintain by giving us a higher taste. Association of devotees, they're so valuable. So Mahaprabhu's associates, I mentioned, they left with him and some who left behind, the likes of Narutam Thakur and Srinivasa uh, Charjas and uh, so on, and uh, Shamananda, some, so many, Rasikananda, Ramchandra. And these devotees, after some time, feeling the association of Mahaprabhu's associates, and the loss of Mahaprabhu, this, uh, the feelings of separation caused them to come together again for some kind of union. And this uh, first uh, gathering is said to have occurred at uh, Keturigram. And that place has something to do with where we are today. And the person who are also responsible, indebted to, for being here, is understood these principles, has understood these principles very well, what I'm speaking about. That is my beloved Godmother, Pujapad Bhakti Lok Paramaruti Maharaj, Shripad Paramaruti Maharaj Ki Jai. He and I, we are of the same species, so to speak. We are born and raised as children of Prabhupada, and then we were nurtured after his departure by our uncle Pujapad Bhakti Raksha Krita Dev Goswami Maharaj. I first met 
Paramadwiti Marsh in London, maybe 1973. At that time, I was well known for preaching and distributing Prabhupada's books. And so I was a young man at the time, and I hadn't taken sannyas, but they were sending me out to different places, to Chicago, to New York, to Australia, from Los Angeles, where San Francisco, and to London I went to preach to the devotees about preaching, basically, that's what we preached about. <laughs> and um, at that time we were, uh, Iskand was at the Bhaktivedanta Manor, which had been recently donated by George Harrison. So some devotees in Germany and other parts of Europe were also sent to have Sangha with me, to give their Sangha to me so that we could grow by Sangha. And what was in me some enthusiasm for book distribution that would be contagious. So Pamela Marshi was like the leading book distributor of Germany, going to the streets and preaching to the people. So he came, we met in London, and we sold books together, and we had a, made a bond. It was difficult. I arrived there with the flu, and I was at a two-week stay and had a flu for one week, but every day we went out and sold books and went to the programs and so forth and, and so on. And it was I was just young and brahmachari and so forth, and and I was had to give classes, and there were sannyasis there, Rivatinanda and Swami, and this one and that one. It was a difficult assignment, but anyway, by, by the help of Parmanwiti Marsh, I got courage, <laughs> and uh, we preach to the devotees in the class, and then go out into the streets and sell the books in London. And it was a challenge to figure out how to sell the books to the people in Piccadilly. Was it circus? So anyway, there we met, and we formed a bond at that time. And of course, we would meet over the years, primarily in Mayapur. In the first Mayapur festival was in 1974, and at that time Prabhupada called me to his room and he told me, so you are going out and preaching all year long, so I want every year you come and spend one month with me here in Mayapur and Vrindavan. So that's when I came directly under Prabhupada's guidance, so to speak. And so then he wrote me letters and things, and GBC questioned my activities, who I was answering to, and <laughs> so forth. That's a long story that culminated in 1975 and my taking sannyasa at the Krishna Balaram Mandir. Complete independence at that time was given to me from the GBC by Prabhupada. <laughs> he told him he doesn't need a GBC. That was his generosity. But at any rate, we would meet at these festivals, Prabhupada's festival, annually. We formed a relationship and over the years we knew one another quite well. And then the disappearance of Prabhupada came and and so many problems, and Pujapad Sridhamarsh appeared like, like the full moon at the setting of the sun of Prabhupada's manifest pastimes to give soothing, cooling rays of reflection on what it is that your Guru Maharaj labored hard to put inside of you. Now he told us, you should think about that, what it is. So he helped us to nurture that. Actually, Paramadwati Maharaj left this gone to come into the shelter of Sridhamarsh maybe about few months before me. So, you know, those were difficult times. His story was inspiring, that there was life, you know, the world wasn't flat. In, in those days, but not like today, it was a huge, Griscon was the only group of devotees. This was like 1980, 82, 83. It was the only group of devotees known in the, in the international community. And it was thought if you go outside of that group, you just don't exist anymore. And they made you feel like you didn't exist anymore because you couldn't, you couldn't associate with anybody. And so it was, it was except others who had went out and then it wasn't always so easy to contact. Anyway, I met Maharaj in San Francisco. I was on my way out the door and his uh, example was, was encouraging. And so then him, he, myself, Shripad Nishringa Maharaj, Shripad Bhakti Abhinarayan Maharaj, we were all like, who passed away a few years back. We're all, as I say, of the same color, the same species. We're all a product of the same association. And so we used to meet then, in those days, here in Vrindavan. And very soon on, Maharaj acquired this wonderful facility, which he's called 
Brindakunja. And since that time, of course, he's continued to be an inspiration, forming the World Vaishnava Association and just being the happy <laughs> person that he is with centers all over the world. How many centers? 1,008 now? I lost count I mean, a long time ago. So many centers. And he's got his date book. Every day is scheduled. He's moving one place to the next three days here, four days. They are very active in South America, also active in Europe. And whenever he comes to Miami, which is his stopover, to go to South America or to go to Europe or to go to India, he always calls me. We talk for a couple hours. Once he came to my facility I had in San Francisco and he made all kinds of long-distance phone calls and I was upset because I didn't have money to pay the bill. <laughs> so he always calls me on his dime. For <laughs> anyway, the point is we go back a long time and he's very, very kindly, um, without thinking twice, agreed to accommodate us all here since we don't have a, an ashram here at the time. And here... Here is Brindakunj, but it has an ancient history. I mean, this is not a new temple. This is, of course, one of the uh, preoccupations of Sripad Paramadwiti Marsh with regard to the Braj. Everybody wants an ashram here uh, or uh, and tries to acquire property and so forth, but he approached it in a particular way. And when that was with the idea that there are so many temples in Vrindavan that are already built, and many of them are not very active, this may happen. And so why not acquire old temples and renovate them and bring them to life and so forth? And so that's what he did here, and he's done that at Bamsi Kunj and at uh, Jamuna Kunj. And so he has at least three, maybe more, facilities here in Vrindavan, all old sandstone temples that he uh, renovated. It's a nice, very nice service that he's done, very nice example that he's set. And he wants to show honor to the previous Vaishnavas. Who, you can imagine, I mean, you know what, uh, some of you may know, uh, all of you assisting me, what it's like to try to open a temple, to develop so much energy, time, love that goes into that. And then it may happen by force of circumstance that, that it doesn't continue after your departure or generations later on. And so how much grace will come to him who then takes those temples and activates them and brings them to life. And so this is his spirit, you see. He goes about this preaching with an idea to get some mercy. That is the idea. Not that he's the big conqueror of the world. I told the story before worth repeating that once I was in the Iskon Chicago temple, residing there for some time, and the devotees went on Harinam Sankirtan, and then they came back, and I met them in the lobby of the temple. And there was a guy in the back of the group, long hair and a beard, and he looked a little bit disheveled and, uh, and whatnot. And one of the devotees quickly ran up to me and said, this guy followed us back to the temple, Maharaj, like it was a problem. And I took a look at him, I looked closer, and I went over and I embraced him. And he was my godbrother who had gotten lost in the Kirtan party, had found him. And three days later, he became the Sankirtan leader, all shaved up and going out, leading the devotees on Sankirtan. So I told him, this is, you go out on Kirtan, to find some sangha, to find some devotee, who's, by getting his association, you can grow. Not that you're going to just conquer everybody and you know everything. And Bodhi Vaishnavas, they don't know anything. <laughs> That's a, another story. Damodar Maharaj, big black man, we were in South India. He took sannyas from me and then we were at Nishunga Maharaj's mat there and the following day, there was a big uh, Ramanuja charger coming in the area for a Sangha. So Maharaj wanted to send some leading devotees to go and pay respects and so forth. So the, some of the new sannyasis were selected and Dhamadar Maharaj was among them. So he came to me and said, what shall I do? How shall I conduct myself there? And I said, do you just think I'm in front of someone from Vaikuntha? A man from Vaikuntha has come. So he said, all right. And so then he went there and everyone was flocking around the charger who, you know, only bathes in rivers and uh, real, like, traditional type, type of romantic acharya life and uh, old Vedic kind of school. So everyone is flocking around him and wanting to get his attention, some blessing and so forth. 
So Marge didn't have that in mind, but he, he went and he just laid out, like, he's a big black man, he paid his dundabots stretched out, and then everybody spread out of the way, and then the Maharaj looked with the Acharya and called him up and gave him attention, like this, without trying. So this is the idea. I told him, when he came and told me the story, I said, yes, this is, it's like when someone, when a sage comes to Vrindavan, if Narada comes to Nandagram, how the devotees will treat him? Oh, we are all the Brajbhasis, you are a Bhadi Bhakta. You should pay obeisance to us. We are Naragmarg. No, not like that. <laughs> not at all. They pay obeisance to him, they worship him. This we should think. We don't know anything. What can we know? What can we say? What can be said? about the gift of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. What, what is that gift? What, what can be said about that? Such a special thing. In that gift we learn what is the value of association with devotees. How do we learn that? In the Braj Leela, every devotee loves Krishna in a special way. As a friend, as a superior, as inferior, as a beloved. This is their natural and dominant emotion, staibhav. But they love one another also. And their love for one another fosters their love for Krishna. So that kind of love is a sancharibhav. It doesn't dominate their existence but it augments the sentiment that dominates and defines their existence. But in some cases, then, the love that the devotees have for other devotees reaches a certain pitch that it comes equal with Krishna. They love a devotee associate as much as they love Krishna. But in other cases, most extreme case, their love for the devotee exceeds the love for Krishna. About this is what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to teach. And this is possible when that devotee, if you will, is Radhika. Who is more wonderful than Krishna? Well, he's quick to say. It is her. Her qualities exceed mine by hundreds and thousands of times. This is what people don't know. He said, they know about me, but they don't know about her. What is her position? So the handmaidens of Radha, their love for her exceeds transcendentally their love for Krishna. And that doesn't change. It remains permanent. If it happened a little bit, then you might talk oh, for a moment maybe. But it's always like that. So because it's constant, it's not transient. And Sanchari Bhav must be transient. You swell up feeling for my friend equal to Krishna. But then because it's really only augmenting my love for Krishna, it fades and the dominant emotion takes precedent. But in the case of the handmaidens of Radha, then this is a wonderful thing. It's dominant. So a special term has been given for that. Babulasrati. You know this. But today I'm speaking about it only in this respect. How we learn from the contribution of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu what is the importance of sadhusanga and loving one another, loving the devotees. Here we find where love of the devotee reaches the zenith and the, it excels the love for Krishna. This is the special thing that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to distribute. After he experienced the fulfillment of his three desires, Vrajendanandan Krishna, in the form of Satchinandan, after he uh, experienced the love of Radha, the sweetness of uh, his own love that she tastes, the glory of her love, and so forth, then he also tasted this. This is clearly described in Chaitanya Charitamrita there. When he saw, for example, that sand dune in, in a puri 
He ran after that, went into a trance, he found himself in Manjari Baba, Babulasrati. So, we should make friends with devotees. That is a, a good idea. This is a, something we can draw from this. Love of Krishna, we foster love for one another. Whoever loves Krishna, then I want his or her association. So Mahabharata's associates, their hearts were pining for the association of elders, seniors, who they had heard about or who had they had a short association with. This is the second generation of devotees. So the idea came to perhaps to Narasimhaku to form a festival, a reunion of all the devotees from all over Bengal and Orissa and Vrindavan side and so forth. And Mahabharata came in a dream to Narsim Thakur and said, you make such a festival, I will appear there. In fact, he revealed to him that he was residing in a, in a warehouse of a rich man. The house was filled with rice. He said, you go there, I'm there with Vishnu Priya Devi in my deity form. So Narsim went to that place and the man refused to let him go into the warehouse because he had a warehouse, wealthy man, it was full of rice, but it was known that the place was full of snakes. No one would go there, cobras. But fearlessly he went to the place. He said he didn't care about that. And everyone watched and all the snakes just went away. They were ananta, unlimited snakes. <laughs> and in the rice, he pulled the deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Vishnu Devi. Then he wanted the Brahman, Srinivas Acharya, to do the Prampatista installation of the deity at Keturi Gram. The deity also, when he appeared in the dream to him, told him, you find my deity there and I want you to make, to manifest five other deities, I think five or six other deities, maybe five, of Radha and Krishna. Establish their worship. So he was doing this and meanwhile Srinivas Acharya came but it took a long time for him to come. So Narutam had some fear that there would not be enough time to gather all the devotees to come for the Phalgu Purnim, the Gaur Purnim. This was, the festival was to be held on the Purnim day commemorating the appearance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Now we have this annually, devotees gathered, but this is the, the genesis of this, this festival. Some number of years after Mahaprabhu left the world, they were too troubled to come together and celebrate. Then that separation, as it does, naturally fostered union and the desire for that, and they came together again. Anyway, Srinivas came. He told Nartam, don't worry, we'll arrange everybody. Everybody will come here. Go on with the preparations for the festival. But he himself had some concern. But Mahabrabhu appeared to him in a dream, said, don't worry, everything will go as planned. So he wrote, like in verse form, so many invitations and sent them to different places. And the devotees heard and gradually word went everywhere and a great march towards Keturi Gram began. And there at that festival, then the deities were installed by Srinivas Acharya. There was Kirtan Mahaprabhu and Nitananda Prabhu, Advaita Prabhu, Srivas Thakur, Karadar Pandit, they all manifested. This was the desire of Janava Mata. She had once more Celia's Mahaprabhu and his principal associates in this world. She attended the festival and to bless her, they all made their appearance in the Sankirtan, celebrating this installation of the deity and so forth. And so, relevant to what we're discussing, one of those deities, Radha Brajamohan, over some time, how long, I don't know, they came under the care of the Rani of Manipur. And Manipur was, uh, of course, a place that uh, Narutam Thakur preached in extensively. So he may have brought the deity there himself to Manipur. And somebody, perhaps Narutam himself, but somehow from Narutam and the installation, the deities came into the care of the Rani, the queen of Manipur. And in those days, for a king to be somebody, he had to have a temple in Vrindavan. And he had to have one for his Rani also, for his queen. In other words, it's not how much money you have, but how you spend it. What kind of art you have, or what kind of properties you have, and so forth. So kings are wealthy. 
But to be a king and be of any consequence socially, you had to have a temple in Vrindavan and patronize these beggars, Sri Sanatan, Jeev Goswami, who, under the direction of Mahaprabhu, under the inspiration of the order of Mahaprabhu, made this place manifest. That we'll talk about perhaps tomorrow. But this temple here, this little temple, that was built for the Rani of Manipur, and Radha Brajamohan was installed in this temple. So it is a very special place in many respects. It's a special place, and we came here by the grace of different people. Of course, I had hoped to go this afternoon to the Srila Prabhupada's quarters at ISKCON, but it was questionable whether that will be possible given circumstances. So we'll see where we'll further this type of discussion about whom we're indebted to for being here. But I wanted to say a little bit, as I mentioned briefly, about this particular place and offer my respect to those who, like Sripad Paramadviti Maharaj, who has been so kind to host us here. It's unfortunate that he won't be here. He'll come about a week later, he told me. But again, we're indebted to him and all of his disciples who are maintaining this place for so many years. So I want to ask now if anyone has any question, and then uh, we'll proceed to the temple not far from here where Radha Brajamohan himself are situated. This is uh, behind the Rangaji temple. There's a Brahmin community that serves the Rangaji there, Ranganath, Ramanuja temple, Ramanuja Sampradaya, and so they have some quarters and residents and temples, also smaller temples, behind the main temple. So there, somehow, history has not been revealed to us, but Raja Mohan are there, and they receive 24-hour Kirtan Hare Krishna Mahamantra. So we go and ask them if they can come back. Maybe they get requests regularly from this moth, I don't know, but I, I certainly would be going out of my way to try, to try to get them to come back whether they will come, whether the guest will release them, that's another thing. You know the story of Govindaji, he's, well, we'll talk about that perhaps later when we go to the Radha Govinda temple and you'll ask, where is Radha Govinda? <laughs> so, any questions? Brain dead, yeah. Gyan Shunya Bhakti, yeah. That's real intelligence. He told, used to tell me, if any smart person comes here, intelligent person, I have to kick on this point again and again, beat him. Gan shunya bhakti, gan shunya bhakti. Because the tendency to want to bring the whole thing within the fist of the intellect is, is very powerful. And um, ultimately, it's, uh, it's counterproductive. It will repel the surup shakti if we try to force our way in there by the strength of intellect. It will, in other words, it will create doubts only. Trying to go there by intellect, that will create doubts. And that is the antithesis of Shraddha, which is the lifeline, really the means of transport there, to be beamed up, so to speak. It's coming from up to down and taking us up. So, brain dead. Actually, Pujapad Sridharmarsh once remarked, I really like the devotees from South America, he said. He said, because they're not complicated like the North Americans <laughs> and Europeans. They have to have everything and make sense, and they just do, they just serve. <laughs> Come, Lenny. Maharaj, but um, on the other hand, isn't it that we can have lazy intelligence and um, you know not want to endeavor to try to understand anything? It's too much work, kind of. Yeah, we should avoid that. We should use our intelligence to the fullest. But this is the conclusion of that, in a sense, to conclude, oh, it has its limitations. Madhimarikari will be troubled by this. The need to make sense out of everything and ostensibly for the sake of preaching, but he's, tr but he's actually troubled by it also. <laughs> and full exercise of intellect, this is required for arriving at nishta. If the soft heart of komal shraddha, tender heart of faith, is to be strengthened, it's by bringing the heart in harmony with the head. And so that's a difficult exercise in which the heart may be a casualty. It's possible. The heart can contain more than the head, but but it can't explain itself. Head seeks to explain it and and potentially to to, uh, to kill it. 
Therefore, that with good association, we should do that. We should use our intelligence to its fullest. No, it's come to a real solid conclusion, logical conclusion of its limitations. And it's anyway, it's written everywhere. It's in every movie, practically. You see, this knowing is not enough. I know, Maharaj, but I feel like this. So that rule, feeling rules, and that's good for us. For Vaishnavism, we say yes, that's feeling rules. So, yeah, we don't want to be lazy. We, sh we should understand some tattva. What does Bhagavad Gita say? From the Chatur That's one, but I'm thinking of another one. Chatur Shloka of the Gita, what is the first one? Aham Sarvasya Prabhavo. Krishna says, Aham Sarvasya Prabhavo. I'm the source of everything. Mata Prabhavo, Sarvam Prabhavartate. So this is Swami Bhagavan. He's the source of everything. Krishna speaking. Aham, who, who knows me? as the source of everything, then he knows where, or she knows, she can repose herself, her, serve, her giving capacity, without reservation. I'm the complete taker. So, for full giving, both things have to be there. We have to have someone who can take unlimitedly, and we have to give without reservation. We can only give without holding back unless, if, if we can give to someone who can take Unlimitedly. So, hamsarvasya prabhavo matasavam pavartite iti matvaba jante mam buddha bhava samanvita raga bhava samanvita raga samanvita. He says, Who knows this? They're in a good position then. Who knows Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam? This is central piece of tattva to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. That person is in a good position then for raga samanvita or agbhakti. That has to be in place. So some touch was required. And then, of course, by applying ourselves in relation to the tattva, the tattva will recede to the background and the bhava will take precedence. And then you can be brain dead. <laughs> but it's a good point. I mean, I, I once listened to a Gaudiya Vaishnava charge speaking and uh, he was speaking to the point of Mahaprabhu's leela and how Mahaprabhu was instructed by his Gurudev that you cannot study Vedanta, you are a murkha, fool. You cannot study Vedanta. So he gave him Krishna Nam, so you just chant Krishna Nam. Because the Acharya was emphasizing this point again and again and again. And in the context of emphasizing the point, he was quoting so many verses from so many places. <laughs> so I wonder if everybody's catching this here. You know, he's telling them, you know, you don't have to study Vedanta. And ah, this is why. This pramana from this Shastra and this Shastra and so forth. So as a parent, he knew a little bit of Shastra. He had a little bit of education, a little bit of study. He had exercised himself to come to that conclusion and say it with some feeling. And everybody else is just thinking, we don't need to know anything. We don't need to know anything. <laughs> you see, a fellow told me after a fairly philosophical lecture, he said, Maharaj, whatever happened to just chant Hare Krishna? Just chant and be happy. You know, like, the implication was, why have to, you know, stretch my brain to understand all these concepts and, and so forth? I said, you tell me, whatever happened? Do you just chant Hare Krishna? What happened? <laughs> I can tell you what happened, because you don't have any Sambandagyan, you don't chant Hare Krishna constantly. Without Sambandagyan, then it would be difficult to derive the full benefit from Krishna Nam. So, that is a special kind of gyan. So, Sambandha gyan. Again, it is by association. Yes, that is a good point. Yes. You said in, in relation to Gyan Shunyabhakti that this Gyan receives the background for Braj Bhaktis. But when in relation to this world, then that becomes manifest, like in the case of this one is? Well, yeah, where there's a need for that knowledge and it comes to the surface. There's a world of ignorance. They had so much knowledge of Shastra, you can see that it's all there. It comes to the foreground. Is that the case of all the Parishads? Or just the Goswamis the only example of that? And well, they were particularly commissioned by Mahaprabhu for preaching, Rupa and Sanatan. That's one of the reasons why they're so special to us, because amongst the Parishads of Mahaprabhu, most of them don't set an example for sadhana, and most of them aren't preaching. But the Goswamis, they're setting an example for sadhana and preaching. So it doesn't necessarily have to 
manifests. Because they don't come here. <laughs> Only if you're going to preach, you have to be a little aware of the external world. And that we find in the Goswamis. I mean, all the Parshads of Mahaprabhu were worldly in an appearance, and so perhaps for many of them in many respects. But the Goswamis were involved in the world and learned and diplomats and so on and so forth. And they used all of that to their advantage for preaching. When you say Gyan, does this mean you're referring to, to knowledge of Shastra, but Gyan also refers to knowledge of Tattva as well? Well, there's a knowledge of Tattva can be knowledge of Shastra, theoretical knowledge. So there's some Bandagyan that's theoretical and there's some Bandagyan that's realized. As we get a proper conceptual, theoretical, conceptual orientation that will foster certain type of activity that we call bhakti. And that will foster realization of sambandhagyan, that ruchi, asakti. So, yeah, there's knowledge inherent in bhakti as much as there's knowledge inherent in love. You know when you love and you know what to do. Yes? This gyan shunya bhakti actually ends in Vrindavan. Here it's no more find. This gyan is not more, no more here. But many times, even the gopis, they actually... It looks like that they speak from Aishwarya Gyan in Gopigit in separation of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So how you can bring this together when you said, we know that in Vrindavan there is no of this Aishwarya present. <coughs> so but actually many times Nakalu Gopikan and the Gopis say like this. Only in separation. Yes, why in separation? Not in union. But when they do that, the result is never that the knowledge of Krishna's divinity obscures their relationship. So this is the idea. In other circumstances, we find that knowledge of Krishna's divinity surfaces in other relationships that the Lord has with other devotees, but when it does, it obscures the natural love that they have. Well, for example, when Krishna was, Vasudev uh, Krishna, born in Mathura, and he manifests Aishwarya, then they're offering prayers to him and so forth and so on. And some distance is being created. But never any distance is created between Krishna and the gopis. So this is the idea that Gyan never takes precedence. Yes, of course, everybody, they know in one sense, that he's the Supreme Personality of Godhead, but they forget about it. I mean, it's, it hasn't changed. There is no meaning to the Madhurya Gyan without Aishwarya Gyan. So the two complement one another. And in other words, if Krishna wasn't the Supreme Personality of Godhead, then his Madhurya would not be so sweet. It would be just an ordinary thing. So only in separation, sometimes such a thing will manifest, but not to the extent that it will obscure their natural love. That is the idea which just goes to show us that it's there in the background. What else? Another question? All right, so then we'll stop there and um, and go and see if we can have the darshan of Radha Braja Mohan. Shri Radha Braja Mohan ki jai, Vrindavan ki jai, Sri Paramaruti Maharaj ki jai, Sri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupad ki jai, Bhakti Raksak Shri Radha Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Bhakti Sarant Sri Thakur Prabhupad ki jai, Sri Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai, Bhakti Vrinda ki jai, Bhakti Premanande.